Welcome to Mastering Data, where we sit down with inspirational leaders in data and IT to hear their interesting career journeys and lessons learned. Each episode is packed with valuable insights and tips for those looking to excel in the world of data. So, whether you're just starting out or a seasoned professional, join us and get ready to take your data skills to the next level. Welcome to Mastering Data, where we learn from the experts about their journey to success. And today we've got a special guest, Catherine Grilfer, who has a resume that will make anyone's head spin. Now, Catherine, I've had to write this down because there's so many qualifications and experience that you've got, right? So just bear with me a minute. So with a background in finance, economics, and accounting, along with a wealth of experience in data science, Catherine No doubt you've got a great deal of knowledge to share today for our listeners. Now, you're also the vice chair of IPA. Hopefully I pronounced that right. It'll do. Okay, that's a good start. (laughs) And a judge for their top 25 analytics leaders award. And you spent the last few years in senior roles at ANZ, Tabcorp, NAB, WorkSafe Victoria, and very recently moved to Catch. So we can't wait to dive into all the insights you've got to offer, Catherine. I'm hoping to learn quite a lot as well. Thanks so much for making the time to join us today on this podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to sit down and have a proper chat with somebody that's, um, you know, a seasoned um, pro at, um, you know, leading data teams analytics. And I guess I'd like to start by going right back to this early days of your career around that kind of, um, even just around your education pieces. You know, I mentioned, you know, you've got a background in finance, economics. It's not always the traditional path that you see for data analytics leaders. I'd love to hear a bit more about that and then how you actually transitioned into the field of getting involved with analytics and will walk through your kind of career history and just those kind of pivot points and stuff as well. How did you get started in data analytics and kind of how did your education kind of set you up for that, would you say, Catherine? Analytics degrees didn't exist when I was (laughs) studying, not like they do today with these great masters of data science and and business analytics. Spoiled for choice Um, now, I guess, aren't you? Absolutely. And I have to say the quality coming out of those programs is so good. But for me, I always loved maths and science. I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I left school. And so I ended up going into science and engineering. And I actually hated the computing elements of the degree. How ironic is that, right? I hated programming, (laughs) didn't have an affinity for it at all, but I love the physics side of things. But I thought this is going to get me nowhere. It'd be fun, but there's no career Mm. for anything beyond academia. Dropped out for a year, did some work experience, and I was working for a financial services company at the time. And I thought, I kind of like this credit assessment side of things. So I went back and did finance and still got the um, fun math side of things through econometrics and those sorts of subjects. Then at the end of that, I thought, well, what do you do? You apply for grad programs. And so I did that with all the banks and then wound up at ANZ. That passion for maths and physics, that was what really kind of set you off on that trajectory, right? Because you mentioned, ironically, computing kind of didn't didn't kind of do it for you as a standalone topic. And, and, and it was similar for me at a uni. I went to study multimedia computing. I was, I was interested in multimedia, but, but not necessarily computer architecture and that kind of aspect, you know, and that kind of put me off as well. And it's just striking that it makes you think about how many people are put off getting into a, 
a actual career in computing science because of that kind of hard line of computing, that really kind of detailed edge of it, you know? So it's interesting that you didn't necessarily get taken by that, but you still found your way into working with data and in, in, albeit computers as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I always say that I knew enough as a practitioner to do what I needed to do from a programming perspective to be able to draw the insight out of the data. But I was never going to be the best programmer. Optimizing code's not my strength. Um, but really the the maths and the insight side of things is is the part that I excel at and that I really enjoy. You've got to wonder whether the computing side is part of the challenge around attracting more women to the industry as well. And as I was sort of saying, I was thinking, you know, is, is it going to deter a lot of a lot of women coming into the industry be, just because of the nature of the subject? And it's not it's not positioned in the same way as like data science, where that's the kind of, you know, sexy aspect, if you like, of, of the industry. Nobody kind of wants to be doing degrees just about computing because they have that vision of, you know, some guy sitting in the corner just plugging away at the at the keyboard as, as well. So it's an interesting one and stuff that we'll definitely touch on again a little bit later when we just talk about sort of the the role education players and, and the, 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 the role that you play as well around talent acquisition and kind of what you look for. I'd just like to bring it back just one second though, back to the career history in terms of ANZ. So you mentioned there that that kind of took you to ANZ. And what I really liked about what you say, Catherine, right? You weren't aiming and you knew that you'd never be the best kind of programmer, optimizers and code, but you knew what you needed to get from an insights perspective as a starting point. That to me is a great distinction to make because often you'll get the best engineers or the best programmers in the room. They can, you know, write the best program you've ever seen, but the insights are lacking and they don't understand what they're going to do with those insights when they get them. So I think that approach that you started off, you know, certainly getting into the, the career and that journey almost kind of put you at a, um, I would say a huge advantage because you're already asking the reason why before you even start to get that means to an end in terms of writing some code to get that. Would you agree that, that that's uh, something that's been a theme for your career as well and helped you? Oh, definitely. When I looked around at the analysts, my colleagues, and I thought, what is it that makes that person so admired and so good at their job? And it wasn't that they wrote the best code or solved even the most complex problems. It was the way they were able to distill a complex topic into a really simple insight that business could then use to drive value. And that was a bit of a turning point for me to realise where I needed to invest my own career development and where I'd get the biggest bang for buck, I suppose. Yeah. And, and where did that take you down then, Catherine, in terms of a journey? So you, you mentioned like investing time in your career and you, you're looking around your other people in the team, you're seeing the success of them. What are the traits that you observed, and, and especially for anyone listening who's looking to, uh, I guess, um, move up the career ladder in data analytics or break into a, a data analytics field? What are the traits that you've observed around you and then try to kind of invest time and money in terms of professional development yourself that you think is important to kind of reach reach the top of your field similar to like you have today? So we always talk about the analytics profession as the intersection between the, the three Venn diagrams. So the maths and statistics side of things, the computing and engineering side, and then the business acumen. And so for me, it's the soft skills that really set people apart. You do need, obviously, a foundation in the maths and the computing skills, 
but what makes a great analyst great other soft skills and so that's probably where I've spent more of my time when I first started my career I was terrified of presenting oh, on my development yeah. plan that's, every year it's a common one right would, it's it's surprising how many even very experienced people you know really don't like to stand up in front of a, an audience and have to present anything you know yeah I would go bright red like it was a physical reaction <laughs> To pre- the the fear of presenting, so I had it on my development plan for several years in early in my career. Had an epiphany one day when I realised that you never actually get over the fear. You just manage you it, just do you? Get better at, <laughs> yeah. at feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> get, getting comfortable with feeling. Yeah, uncomfortable. that's right. So obviously, in your role today, you're going to be presenting. You know, very regularly now. It, I totally get your point that it's never going to get easier. It's more about a case of managing that that fear, however that might be. You know, being well prepared and and being well versed in what you what you're going to talk about. Obviously, you know, makes that a little bit easier. Did you do anything outside of work then to prepare? for it or was it really just in the coal face, Catherine, in terms of just doing it again and again and again, like exposure therapy, if you like, to, to get, you know, get okay with it? There are definitely preparation strategies so that you feel as comfortable as you can be. But honestly, it's just exposure. And for me, it was a commitment to turn up to conferences that I didn't have people I knew around me and forced myself to introduce myself to people, saying yes to talk on panels or to give presentations. Yeah, just putting myself up there and developing, I guess, that that comfort level. And is that like a trait that's followed you through your career, Catherine, in terms of putting your hand up for things and stepping forward and maybe it's getting outside of your comfort zone? Is that something that you can observe kind of looking back through your, throughout your career experience? Yeah, definitely. For me, it's really a life trait. I remember in year nine at high school, I actually signed up to drama as an optional subject for a term. The thought again terrified me, but again, trying to develop some sort of confidence because um, I just felt crippled by it. Wow. That set you on that that path, right? Uh, even at such a young age, and I guess if you're maybe a bit shy and kind of, you know, don't want to put yourself in the center of attention, certainly my daughter's like that. <laughs> and, you know, she, she has the self-awareness to understand that, but I guess it's taking that step and actually making that decision for yourself to say outside your comfort zone is uh, is really beneficial and something that's probably put you in good stead, I guess, going forwards as well. You mentioned a little bit earlier about the soft skills, Catherine, that, that you think is really important just around the people and leaders that you've observed over your, your time in the industry. Is it something then that you look for over hard technical skills when you're looking at attracting and retaining talent? Because obviously you don't need me to tell you and, and no doubt all the listeners know that there's a huge talent and skill shortage in Australia and no doubt in other places and globally at the moment as well. It's something that I'm really interested in in terms of a strategy for talent acquisition because of those reasons and because it's a challenge for all businesses at the moment. So what would you say are the top kind of free skills that you look for in a candidate and have you tried anything novel or unique to identify where that talent may live outside of the traditional channels? For me, it's definitely the soft skills over the technical skills. Again, you need to have a technical foundation, so I don't want to um, minimise that. And sometimes you do need a really strong technician if you've got the balance of the team you've got the soft skills there already. So I guess it depends what you're recruiting into, but I tend to favour the soft skills more. 
I think they're just harder to teach soft skills to people if you don't have that innate ability versus the technical skills. If you know some sort of coding language, you can pick up another one. You can do a base stats course, but to teach someone curiosity and uh, investigative skills. <laughs> yeah, where do you start with that, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's really hard to build that into someone's way of working, I suppose. It doesn't always work out. I never <laughs> does. I don't, terrible, I, yeah, well, I don't think there's a foolproof <laughs> system. You know, I think you could only take it so far and, and often good feel to a point can lead you in the right direction as well, right? Yeah. Not always, but, no. <laughs> but most of the time. You know, it's definitely something I've observed and I've probably changed my my approach and strategy over the years after doing, you know, more interviews than I want to care to think about in terms of the time and, and no doubt you have as well. It's that the, the technology obviously changes so quickly. So to have a, a particular technical skill in a certain hot technology now not, might not be the same tomorrow, but also to try to, like I say, teach curiosity or values of how to treat people with respect and work in the team, stuff that, you know, inherently that you want to see in your candidates to be able to fit as part of your culture is obviously super important and hard to extract, I would say, in a 60-minute interview as well. I don't know if you've got any particular um, approaches or questions that you do to kind of draw that out from people or if you've tried anything novel in terms of strategies, whether running an event or different things in any of your previous companies. Have you tried anything novel and has that worked or has it backfired as well? Is the stuff that we should avoid and, you know, as opposed to that? To draw out those skills or during the recruitment Yeah, process? I think if, I think during the recruitment process to understand if somebody has those values, you know, what questions can you ask? And, um, and I guess the second part of my question is around, you know, that trying anything different rather than just going, you know, posting stuff on the job boards and, and ha having candidates apply. Has there been any unique or novel perspectives or approaches you've taken? I think firstly, I'm not a big fan of technical tests as part of interview processes. Um, some people are, it's just not for me. I think if you've got a history of job experience in the analytics profession, you haven't got through without basic technical skills. So I kind of take that as a given. I'm really focusing on the problem solving approach and so I'm asking some business-related questions, um, so like some analytics use cases that relate to our business to understand if people don't have an intimate knowledge of the data, but can they think about the data domains and the type of attributes that they would use to explore a problem. And then probing the commercial thinking as well. So are people thinking about the commercial applications of the outcome of their analytics and how would they size the impact, or, you know, the revenue impact or, or the business impact of their technical solution That's and a good determine one. whether it was viable or not. Yeah. yeah. Um, so is it even in the thought process well, this is it. Is or it, are they yeah. just keen to solve the problem? Yeah, and I think that commercial question is a real killer question. I, I think I like the scenario-based ones, so I often say give them a scenario or let them describe a scenario and their problem-solving approach or critical thinking approach they did to you know resolve that that problem and what the outcome was because it shows you that pattern of, of thought. But that commercial one, it's not something I've ever asked before and it's I'm not entirely sure how many could give a satisfactory answer to that, right? Because like you say, it's not necessarily the first thing that 
technical people certainly think about. And again, it goes back to why I think that you've got a, a major advantage early on in your career by thinking in that way, thinking of what, what am I going to do with this potential hypothesis where, when I prove it's true, is it really going to add value to the business? So I think that's really, really interesting one. One thing I wanted to touch on is the, we mentioned at the top of the, in the introduction at the top of the call is that you're part of the judging panel for the hyper uh, top 25 analytics leaders. What do you look for in those leaders? And is the crossover to some of the kind of aspects we've just discussed when you're looking to, you know, attract and recruit talent? as part of your day-to-day job as, as the head of data analytics? So in the leaders, I'm really, again, looking for the commercial side of things and how they're building the brand of their analytics teams. I'm looking for evidence that they're tapped into the business strategy, first and foremost, um, because that's really our key role as analytics leaders is making sure that we understand the corporate strategy and are really anchoring the data and analytics strategy to enable those commercial outcomes. Um, So that's number one. And then again, they're able to quantify the impact that the analytics are having on the business strategy and the the business outcomes. So there's got to be some hard examples um, that demonstrate value add from the analytics. And then there's a part around nurturing the community both internally and externally. So your internal analytics team that you lead and maybe a broader community within the organization, but also the analytics community in general. And so that might be involvement in meetups, presentations. Like giving back to the community. Yeah. Have you got any examples like or really outstanding examples during that time of judging that you've seen, and, and you know you don't have to mention any names, anything, but any kind of examples that, that you've seen that have really stood out and in, in, in you know head and shoulders above the rest. I'm constantly feeling like an intruder when I'm doing <laughs> it's like that the judging. Syndrome. Thinking, yeah, <laughs> I'm actually really lucky that I'm a judge and I can't enter this competition. <laughs> yeah, it takes it takes it off the table in terms of a question, I guess. The, the quality is fabulous, but really, you can see a distinct difference between like the top ten mm. and the rest of the pack. And when you're doing the judging, it's really noticeable. And I think it comes because you do a written submission that gets you through the first round and shortlisted then for consideration. And then you do a um, recorded response. And it's in that recorded response and the way people are able to respond to the questions around the strategic alignment, data literacy and the importance of data ethics and how you balance different workloads between innovative projects and BAU sort of core commitments. And I'm looking for people who aren't reading from scripts and I'm imagining this is them demonstrating how they talk to their executive team. So this is a a live calling, Catherine, is it that they go through? No, it's recorded. So it's pre-recorded. Okay. So they get a list of like questions, if you like, and they have to kind of deliver that back to to camera, is it? And just pre-record that? Is that how it works? That's right. Yes. If there's people out there, the reason why I ask if there's there's listeners out there that feel as though that in this kind of tranche of of candidates that you you would be, you know, interested in and wanted to apply, what, what would your advice be to them? And what would be the approach that they take to kind of put in that initial written submission? I think in the written submission, it's about answering the question, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So read it well and answer it. <laughs> yeah. Don't refer us to your work yeah. over on this website because we're not going to look. You've got to 
follow the rules. It's a key tip there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Read too many of those. Yeah. And I think keep it really punchy. Give explicit examples. Don't downplay your contribution to the community. We get a variety of different levels of leaders and everyone's eligible to apply. And so even those that aren't in, you know, the top analytics job but are leaders or even not directly people leaders but have a leadership role with their peer groups, then don't downplay your contribution. Mm. I think we tend to do that as an analytics community. And so take a bit of ego juice (laughs) when you're ready (laughs) and then, yeah, put it all out there. And I think that's probably an an important point to make, right? Because I I guess people are probably sitting there thinking, uh, oh, I'm not good enough because I'm not leading a whole team of people every day or don't work for one of the major banks or, you know, a, a major enterprise organization. These people, right, they could be working for startups. They don't necessarily need to have direct reports, I guess, from what you're saying. It's more of a case of the contribution that they're making, not only from a commercial and analytic standpoint, as you mentioned earlier, to their own, you know, their own organization, but also giving back to the community as well. So I think the message is there that 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 shouldn't deter people from applying because you would probably welcome those those kind of people coming in. Absolutely. You probably don't say enough, I guess. We've had examples where we've had um, mid-level leaders outrank senior leaders in the same organisation oh, wow. in, in the leadership awards. Yeah. So it's really not about seniority. It's about being able to demonstrate that um, impact on community, impact on organisation, showing leadership qualities. And you don't have to have the position to show leadership qualities. Good. And talking about leadership qualities, that provides me a very seamless link to just to bring everyone up to date on your, uh, you know, your, your career history and profile. So you did a good four years as the Chief Data Analytics Officer at WorkSafe Victoria. And then before moving on to Catch, where you are today as the Head of Data Analytics about seven months ago. Prior to that, you were obviously in ANZ, as you mentioned, as well as stints at NAB. So you went sort of from financial services to quite a different industry in terms of WorkSafe Victoria, and then again, a different a different leap into another industry in retail. So what was the kind of um, thought process behind that? Was that a preconceived plan that you wanted to have quite different um, industry experience to keep kind of, um, you know, being engaged and it comes back to that kind of curious kind of point that you mentioned earlier and constantly asking kind of um, new questions and putting your hands up to do, to do different things and step into the unknown. Was that part of it, do you think? And, and what was the, um, the kind of the thinking behind those moves? At some point in your career in analytics, you'll be faced with, do I want to become a technician or do I want to become a manager? And, and you have to pick one, right? <laughs> do do yeah. you have to pick one? Because I'm sure some people do. don't like to pick one, do they? <laughs> and it doesn't mean that you don't love the technical part if you choose the management part. I just felt I had more to give in that space and there were always going to be better technicians to me. And those people generally don't want to sit in the meetings and negotiate with stakeholders. I could actually have an impact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you've got to make that choice. And then in your management career, you've got to decide at some point, am I going to be an analytics specialist leader or am I going to be a generalist manager? And for me, I love the 
management and leadership parts of the role, but I love analytics at the heart. So for me, it was always an analytics leader. So in banking, I didn't want to be a generalist. And so at some point I needed to get out of banking. The choice to move to government wasn't a specific one to moving to government. It was just the dream role that popped up and it happened to be in government. And so that's where I ended up at WorkSafe Victoria for four years. Um, it was a good stint. Four years is a good time it to good time. learn a lot about the industry. Yeah. Um, government was very different to private sector, to banking. And then I felt that I needed to get back into private sector. I, I really missed the high-performing teams. I don't know. I just missed that private sector vibe, more uh, of the yeah. corporate vibe. And I get it. And I think there's a different kind of cadence, right, when it's privately funded, if you like. Yeah. Um, you know, there has to be a real commercial, again, that word coming up again. But there has to be a real edge to, to that private sector experience. So how have you found those kind of initial seven months moving into the retail sector back to the private aspect of things. It'd be great to hear as well, kind of at a high level, what you're responsible for, because, you know, data analytics is a big catch-all word. It's, it's often a, a nice and easy place to go, or anything data related, that's <laughs> that's the remit of, you know, someone in a role like yourself. So it'd be great to hear kind of your initial impressions about the cultural differences and about how your role sh is shaping up over the initial few months at Catch. Such a difference. And um, <laughs> I when imagine. I was interviewing with Catch, there was a lot made about the different pace mm. at which, you know, Catch would operate and retail businesses operate compared to something like government or banking. And I said, yeah, that's fine. Like I've got three kids under five. I'm used to chaos. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I, can, I bet. I can deal with it. So, the, so the, I guess that pace thing, that didn't put you off. It didn't deter you at all. And, and I guess you were looking for that change, right? I was, yeah. I was really craving that change of pace as well. So it aligned well. I don't think I really realized that there was such a difference between analytics practiced in corporate private enterprise and even government versus then like a tech company, e-commerce, like a digital native. Mm. And what were those differences, Catherine, would you say then? I felt like I was back to focusing much more on the detail of problems. So not sitting in meeting rooms, negotiating. I wasn't starting my day thinking about what's the outcome I need to achieve and who do I need to convince to do what to get there? So the politics the whole, of, of everything. Yeah, the whole yeah. politics yeah. was missing and everyone was just focused on getting things done. So you go to less and less meetings now is what is what in no. this role? <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so I knew it was too good to be true. Different sorts of meetings. Yeah, but I guess more, more data and outcome driven and focus is what you're saying? Yeah, and I've been much more in the detail. Um, I've had to build a team from ground up which I didn't expect to have to do, but it's nice to be able to sort of create your own team. Well, that was something I just wanted to, to pick up on, just as you mentioned that point. So because we've talked about your kind of career uh, experience and history so far to date and brings us up to where we are today, we've talked about that talent acquisition strategy. So once you've got those people in and you've had to build this team, like you just mentioned in, in Catch from uh, scratch, <laughs> pardon the, uh, the, the Ryman expression there, but then... How do you instill a 
culture. What does that culture look like? Especially, I mean, I know you guys are like two, three days in the office or something now, but with people working remotely, not necessarily seeing that team all the time, have you had to adapt your management style and how do you bring a team together to work cohesively when it's harder to instill a culture when you don't see everybody every day? I'm still figuring it out, to be honest. I don't think anyone's got all the answers in this space yet. And we're probably going to see a bit of still more storming and forming until everybody sort of lands what works for them. We do two days in the office. And actually, before I joined Catch, I was told no one ever sees the data team. They never oh, really? come into the office. Oh, wow. okay. <laughs> they don't come to events. <laughs> That's the typical tech people, right? That are just hiding behind their computers, not wanting to talk to people, isn't it? They are. But you'd be surprised. I think if you create the opportunities, then data people will be involved. And they're good partiers. They're often there till the very <laughs> yeah, end. That's you'd right. You'd be surprised. Yeah. So that's something that's changed then, Catherine. Obviously, this is, since you've came in, people had that initial kind of rightly or wrongly, that, that preconceived idea of the data team. You know, nobody's there. They're not visible. That's something that you've, you've changed during the seven months that you've been there? I have. I mean, it's been driven from top down. So we did move to a new building in October last year. And with that, there was an expectation then set to be in the office two days a week. I've always been a big believer that if we're asking people to come into the office, there's got to be a reason why. And so how do we make people's time in the office the most productive it can be? So trying to do uh, workshops and, you know, huddling around a board. I really miss the physical ward. Mm, yeah. <laughs> we so do I, can actually. stand it's up there <laughs> and point the, to yeah, things yeah. and bring stakeholders along. So that's kind of my intent. I don't think we've nailed it yet. And it's something that I want us to work on this year. But um, I do think the hybrid mo- model is really good and it's good balance. You've just got to then find ways to do the things in the office where you can get the most value out of them. And then same thing, spend your time at home focusing on the things that you can be most productive at there. You mentioned a little bit earlier that you've got um, three children, is it, Catherine? Yes. And how old are they? Five, three, and almost two. Wow. Okay, so not only are you you working full-time in quite a senior position with a lot of responsibilities and obviously a lot of things going on, You've got three children under five. So how do you kind of balance and juggle all of that kind of work and life responsibility and kind of how do you kind of approach each day? It's hard. I'm not going to downplay it. But it was also something that I never was willing to compromise. I love working. I love my job. I lo- not every day. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but for the most You've part. You've got to have the bad days to appreciate the good days, right? Yeah. I need it. I need it for me. I need to exercise my brain. I have utmost respect for stay-at-home parents because I struggle to get through a weekend looking after my kids. <laughs> um, so I always knew that I was going to work um, and have kids at the same time. So I guess for me, it wasn't, can I do this? It was, how are we going to make this work? Yeah. I'm very lucky that my husband, well, I shouldn't say lucky because it is a partnership. Yeah, um, absolutely. That we're able to balance and share the responsibilities. He works from home, which is handy when it comes to drop-offs and pickups and things like that as well. So open communication, being flexible, 
about our rosters for the day. And I think the pandemic gave both good things and bad things. It was really hard having a newborn and a two-year-old and a -a three-and-a-half-year-old in isolation during the pandemic. That was really tough. The same token, it's normalised flexible work arrangements. Yeah, especially when on calls and your your kids come in in the background and stuff. I'm sure that happens quite regularly. That's true, yeah. yeah. But you don't feel the walk of shame when you leave the office at three o'clock or four o'clock or whatever it might be to go do a pickup. My son's home from school today. They've got people three days. Oh, right. Okay. I can work and you can do this. Him next to me and yeah. So I think there are some really good things that have come out of the pandemic, but I think it's about being open about what you need to do, home and work balance. Um, And I'm always stressing that with my people as well. Work will always be there. You've got to deal with your home responsibilities. And we all work hard enough that if you do need to take some time off for something, then it all balances out in the long run. I've always been of that mindset and it's just that now I think um, the working mechanisms just support my ethos a bit better. That was great and I can definitely see that coming through. In one of the questions I wanted to ask you just just around that is with a full-on kind of job and a lot of responsibilities and a team of people to manage and then a lot going on obviously at home as well, Doing a role like yours isn't for the faint-hearted, and you're going to need a certain amount of resilience and motivation and drive to overcome challenges. If there's other people out there in a similar position to you, with like three young children at home and having to juggle work responsibilities, whether that be in the data field or not, you know, like, do you have certain tools to help manage that? Um, coping with stress? Do you have like a a particular daily routine? Do you have certain kind of tools that you use to kind of make that easier that you've developed over the years? Because even without three young children, Catherine, like these roles, like I say, are quite challenging depending on the environment that you work in. What have you learned over the years and what advice would you give somebody who is struggling to kind of juggle all those kind of competing priorities? I think the biggest thing for me is when I first had children, I just had to make my peace with the fact that I can't do it all. I can't spend weekends on the laptop, you know, doing extra work. I can't always log on in the evenings once the kids go to bed. I've sat there and calculated the hours in the day and thinking, when am I going to do all of this? And you just end up with, well, when am I actually going to (laughs) sleep? Because you just keep adding things and adding things. And so you're just going to make your peace with it at some stage that I can't do it all. And I guess that helps you prioritize better. Yeah, You have to have ruthless prioritization and a good understanding of what are the real impacts that I can make both in a work and home life and really focus your attention there and let the little things go. Yeah. And I think that's great advice, right? Because I think um, there's always going to be work there, like you say. There's always going to be more work than you can potentially deal with. So if you wanted, you could fill, fill your day with, you know, I'm sure meetings for the full eight hours every day and more, but it may not be adding real value. So I think just to have that ruthless prioritization, like I, I love that kind of phrase. And it's, it's one that I actually use myself from time to time because you have to be ruthless because you have to ask that question why are you doing this again? Why, you'd, why If you're going to invest a finite amount of time somewhere, whether that be at home or at work, it has to have a, an outcome. 
an impact associated with it, right? And I think that advice is, uh, is is really sound. And I think that, you know, a lot of people would stand to benefit from that. One thing I want to ask you about that we haven't touched on yet is mentorship and the role of mentorship. And if you've had any particular advice that anyone has given you over the years, whether that be in the formal capacity of a mentor or just a, a manager or a leader or a colleague, what role do you see kind of mentorship playing in, in, you know, over the years with yourself? And have you had any really good pieces of advice that's kind of changed the trajectory or your outlook on on work? Oh, many. And whether they be formal mentors or just, you know, those people that inspire me and that I have in the little black book that I call on when needed. I've had lots of really important career advice um, early on in my career, one that really sticks and I've spoken about a few times in podcasts and things was when there was a management role, four grades above my analyst level. Four grades. Recruiting for it. <laughs> yeah, it was four, wow. four levels above. And look, two levels above is unheard of. You don't get to skip a level, let alone four. They couldn't find a candidate in the market. And I eventually said after through all of that recruitment process, well, I'll do it as a joke, not as a joke, (laughs) but I pitched it as a joke. And my boss said, well, why didn't you tell me? Would have saved me all of this trouble. And that was my real lesson that you really need to speak up. If there's something that you want, you need to speak up and you need to make your career aspirations known to your people leader and others. They can't read your mind. And really that's your job as a people leader is to help your people achieve their next career objective and how they know how to support you if you don't tell them what you need and what you're aspiring to. So that's one that I really hold dear. I'm probably more open about my career aspirations than some people are comfortable with, but I've never understood... (laughs) I remember I was having a discussion with my peer group, the leadership team. I think it was at NAB. And I said, oh, who wants the boss's job in front of the boss? I'm like, well, I, because I would want that job one day. It doesn't yeah. mean I'm going to go knife him to no, get it. No, of course. <laughs> but, and I'm sure you, you can know, guess anyway, you know, who. who that's who, what who I'm aspiring for. to. Yeah, absolutely. And there was someone else who was visibly uncomfortable with that conversation. I said, sorry, is this not, is this uncomfortable for you? And she said, well, actually, here it is. I don't necessarily understand, but some people maybe don't want to be as open and transparent about what their career objectives are or aspirations are. I just think it's, you know, it's why we work, isn't it? To do the next the next big thing. Yeah, I, I guess it is, you know, and I guess it comes from a place of confidence, right? And I think, you, you know, if, you, if you're confident in your ability and you're not operating from a place of insecurity, then it's far easier to kind of come out and say those things, you know, and um, I think it's great that it's a great message to, to ask for what you want. And isn't that story that you mentioned there about kind of putting your hand up for that role of four grades above you is how strikingly similar is that to a nine-year-old Catherine in the classroom looking to do drama as well, right? So again, a trait that's kind of, you know, marked, marked not only your career, but your whole, your whole life all the way through, you know? So I think that's really great to see. One of my final kind of questions, Catherine, for you is just, um, you know, we, we've kind of looked at, into the the past uh, in terms of your career experience. We looked into how you're running the team at the moment, building that team, establishing a culture. But what do you see the biggest challenges facing, you know, the data and analytics industry for the next sort of five years, three to five years? How do you see it changing? What things do you think could be done 
better that you're hoping um, will be done better. Where do you see things going and, and do you things, see things changing um, much for the better? Oh, that's a big question. And you can pick anyone, and that could be technology, could be people welcoming people from different kind of backgrounds and experience into the world of work and, and data analytics. I think lots changing, but the fundamental issues don't change. So the tech changes rapidly. In fact, if I were a practitioner on the tools today, I'd probably be a bit daunted by just the rapid change and trying to keep up with tech trends. So I don't think that's going anywhere. And, you know, there will continue to be innovations that will make things faster, allow us to do more complex things in a more mainstream way. That will continue. One thing I don't think ever changes is the supply and demand problem. And so there's always going to be more demand for analytics insights for access to data, for data and analytics capability than a single team can provide. And so it just reinforces to me that continued democratisation of access to data and capability into non-technical hands. And I used to hate the sales pitches from vendors around the analytics modeling tool that you could give to a marketer and they could do without the support of the analytics team. But I get it. It's got to be about how we move the less technical people up the maturity curve and give them greater capability to be able to answer their core business questions without relying on the highly scarce technical resources that you have in your team. So that's, I think, a problem we've always had, we will continue to have, and we just have to get better at prioritising where we use the skills of those small teams and um, making sure that, you know, we're doing the right thing by them as well and using their skills for the problems that really need their skills. Yeah, and I think it's a great point and a challenge that Nothing's found a solution to, yeah, and, and, and you know, the the speed of delivery might have increased a bit during the time that we've been in our careers, but managing that business expectation, which has only went up and up probably 10 times more than the speed of development has in comparison is always going to be a, a huge challenge and one that's going to, I think, remain certainly for the next uh, you know a few years anyway. Listen, Catherine, we're, we're pretty much up against time. We've covered a lot of ground. I've, I've asked half the questions I had for you, but it doesn't matter because we went off on some tangents, which were really, really useful and insightful. I'd just like to, to thank you so much for your time for because I know how busy you are <laughs> and I've established how busy you are at home and at, at work now. So it's even, um, you know, we thank you even more for giving up the time and um, in sharing the insights with our listeners and, and answering some of uh, some of my difficult questions for me. So we really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best in your uh, future. I'd catch as you kind of transition in, into building the team and adding more value. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Mastering Data. Hit follow to get future episodes packed with valuable insights and tips for those looking to excel in the world of data. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review to help others find the podcast.